Hello and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on our ocean. I'm John Sherburn, editor and producer for the show. The Blue Earth Podcast is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization focused on developing ocean ambassadors and future leaders. You can find us on social media at Future Frogmen and at futurefrogmen.org. This episode is a conversation between our president, Richard Hyman, and our guest, David Helvarg, a prolific author, journalist, environmental activist, and founder of the Blue Frontier Campaign. They cover topics including 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, the Ocean Climate Action Plan, Why Your Vote Matters, Racial Injustice, and more. Thank you. And remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. David, hey, great to see you. It's been way too long. You, you have such a diverse background, and uh, among your life's work, you've written six books, and you've done extensive journalism, and you've even reported from every continent on the planet, and you've done incredible environmental activism. You're truly a, a leader, and I wonder uh, how that's brought you to this point, all of that background. How has it brought you to this point in your journey? Well, sort of briefly, I mean, my folks were you know, war refugees came to America, you know, by boat, all the usual opportunities. When my mom arrived, they were escaping Holland just as the Nazis were coming in. And they looked, they got to New York Harbor two weeks later, looked for the Statue of Liberty, but it was a foggy night. All I could see to know they were here was the Wrigley's neon chewing gum sign on the Staten Island side. But, uh, you know, they, they really came for freedom. And I sort of Grew up a middle-class American kid, but always knowing that history could knock the pins out from from under you at any time. So, you know, as a little kid, I always thought I, I always had this water connection and, you know, bugging the folks to take me to Jones Beach, you know, swimming in Long Island Sound. Uh, but, you know, when I was 10, I thought I'd grow up to be a frogman, save dolphins in America. And by 13, I thought I'd be an oceanographer. At 15, my mom took my sister and me down to the Florida Keys and it was like, coming home to a place he'd never been before, that turquoise water, and got my first mask and snorkel. And till then, I thought I was generation too soon to see alien worlds and then all these living living rocks and shoaling fish and my first little hammerhead shark. And, you know, I thought I had a life course. And then civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, you know, I sort of the moments and movements of my youth kind of kicked the struts out from under me. And in trying to understand what was going on, I ended up going off to Northern Ireland as a reporter in the early 70s to cover the troubles and, and spent the next 30 years in a schizophrenic state of, of, you know, traveling the world, covering wars and politics and epidemics, but, but always wanting to get home to go body surfing. So uh, 30 years later, my second book was the, the ocean book I always wanted to do, Blue Frontier. and that happened at a time later in my life where I just lost my partner. I was very depressed. And uh, and I got a call out of the blue from Ralph Nader, who had read the book Blue Frontier in the last chapter. The Seaweed Rebellion was all about solutions, you know, grassroots activists who were offering solutions. They just weren't scaled up to the problems we were facing on our ocean planet. And at the time, I was getting ready to uh, go back to war reporting. I thought, you know, this was when President Bush was ginning us up for the second war in Iraq. And I kind of knew from past experience that war was a good antidote to depression. 
packing my bags almost. And Ralph asked if I was interested in starting a nonprofit to connect, if anybody was connecting all these, what I call seaweed, marine grassroots forces. And I called around and spoke to a lot of people I'd interviewed, you know, fishermen and activists and surfers, and realized that was sort of a niche that still was not completed. And I felt like, okay, thought about it. Figured we always have wars. We might not always have living coral reefs or kelp forests or healthy wildlife. I thought, you know, that uh, maybe that's my calling after all, to reconnect with uh, Mother Ocean. Plus, I'd inherited Nancy's cat, and I didn't know what to do with uh, the cat if I went off to war. So I, I kind of later wrote that it was uh, the Poose who didn't even like getting her paws wet who reconnected me with our water world. Um, that was, gosh, going on 17 years ago. And in that period, what I've tried to do is uh, take my skills as an investigative journalist and write more about the ocean, but also... The first thing we did was put a, a directory together, some 1,400 local, regional, national groups and institutions working to protect our planet, our ocean planet, out of that network, that Blue Ocean Guide that's still on our website at bluefront.org. Um, out of that, we, we did our first gathering of the uh, tribes, as it were, in 2004, our first Blue Vision Summit, and trying to basically empower people who love the ocean to... Uh, have effective power in terms of uh, turning the tide, making for a healthier ocean. And so we've, we've had since then six Blue Vision summits with Hill Days going on Capitol Hill to advocate for the blue in our red, white, and blue. We, we launched the Peter Benchy Ocean Awards, which lasted for a decade and became kind of the Academy Awards of the Ocean. And pretty much everything else we, we can do to kind of really build the, the kind of grassroots movement that connects with policymakers and with leadership in this country to recognize that a healthy ocean matters and not just in our coasts and on our waters, but for everyone. And I think we've, we've had some success, but the challenges keep growing along with, uh, you know, I'm more frustrated than despairing because we know what these solutions are. It's growing the political will to enact them. And we're in one of those crisis moments again, where we're taking the next step and trying to create a, a Blue New Deal and ocean plan that addresses climate. Wow, you just covered a whole bunch of topics that I definitely want to dive into with you. But why don't we pick up that last topic, the Blue New Deal? Let's talk about that. Great. I'm excited because this Monday, which is going to be, I guess, the July 13. We're finally launching the final version of our Ocean Climate Action Plan, which is the result of 16 months of collaboration. It started when Blue Frontier partnered with the Center for the Blue Academy at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies in uh, Monterey. And I mean, for years, I've been concerned that the ocean community has addressed a lot of problems, but not recognize the centrality of climate change, its impacts. So, you know, you have these cascading series of disasters of industrial overfishing, of pollution, of loss of habitat. Um, and yet, as on the planet as a whole, climate disruption is kind of overwhelming it. It's, it's not just rising and warming seas and intensifying hurricanes and acidifying the ocean. It's, it's we're basically changing the physical nature of the ocean, its circulation, its temperature, its chemistry, its color all within my lifetime and yours, all within, you know, a very brief time where NOAA has just put out a report that says 
we're now in a above normal hurricane season. NOAA says that hurricane intensity is increased 8% per decade as a result of fossil fuel fired climate change uh, for at least 40 years, which means the next hurricane that hits our shores today will be a third more intense than a similar hurricane that hit in 1980. So, you know, we're talking about a blink of an eye in which we've lived our lives in geological time. We're entering a, a sixth or seventh extinction pulse, which is increasingly tied to what we're doing to our atmosphere. And so how do you respond? As I said before, you know, we know what the solutions are. It's creating the political will to enact them. Well, we know what the solutions are, but we really need to talk to people in a wide range of, uh, of ocean communities to understand what each sector can do to make a difference and how cumulatively we can have a plan. And so we started with an article, I think in March of 2019 from Manga Bay, which is kind of a online science-based journal, but you don't have to wait six months for peer review. And we talked about, you know, what, what's needed in a Blue New Deal. We were kind of motivated. It's Jason Scores who runs the uh, Center for the Blue Economy. And I wrote this article because the Green New Deal had just come out. You know, congressional Democrats, a very progressive plan, the only problem was they forgot the other 71% of the planet, which is ocean. And so we started um, shortly after that article, we started bringing together people here in California because California has really got a lot of leadership on ocean and coastal issues and most other issues. There's a kind of parochialism, but uh, we kind of feel like we're a nation state, 40 million people, the world's fifth largest economy, and we've done good by the ocean. So. In the fall of 19, we brought 60 ocean leaders from conservation and industry, from fishing and aquaculture and, and finance and other sectors and um, communities at risk. And we're addressed by, uh, by Secretary Yi, who's the state financial director, and she, um, she controls $700 billion in pension funds and talked about how that, that has enough heft that she can influence the financial sector to begin investing away from fossil fuels and into renewables and the importance of, uh, of having a healthy ocean as part of the response to climate change. And she keynoted along with a couple of youth from Heirs to the Ocean, because we have a youth advisory council, it's their future. And we began to formulate four sectors that are really important in the plan, which is coastal infrastructure and financing, offshore renewable energy, primarily wind at this point, ports, shipping, and the maritime sector, and the role that they can play in, in the transition of fossil fuels. And finally, fisheries, aquaculture, and marine biodiversity conservation. And with people by this April, we had a, the original plan was a, a three-day Blue Vision type conference in DC. Of course, that got uh, short-circuited by the pandemic. And so we had a five-hour webinar with leaders from different sectors, we had about 800 people participating. And since then, we've gone through uh, several processes of revisions of what's turned into a 40-page, very detailed ocean climate action plan. And we just last week, Congress released their, the House side, the Democrats basically released a, a climate plan that, unlike the Green New Deal, incorporates a lot of what's, what's coming out this Monday in, in the uh, Blue New Deal. So we're really happy to see that they address some of the issues 
we also there there's some parts of what we've worked on that are not in the democrats plan and so we hope to reach out both to the democrats in the house and uh, to the biden campaign and it's a nonpartisan effort i mean you know restoring our ocean has never in the past been a partisan effort but at this point we'll reach out to all politicians but realistically we think that uh, in order to implement our proposals we're going to need a change of government we feel like the trump administration just treats the ocean as a gas station and a garbage dump but we have you know we have a history where people might remember the mccain lieberman um, climate plan of the early aughts of the earlier part of the last decade when climate was a nonpartisan issue and when i started blue frontier there were six leaders of the uh house ocean caucus three democrats three republicans and they they signed off and distributed copies of my book 50 ways to save the ocean well those three republicans are gone and somehow anti-ocean anti-environmentalism has become common coin in the republican party so i think that's going to have to change i think it will with the coming elections our plan our ocean climate action plan as i say it's not partisan but i think what we're really doing is waiting for political change in the fall and waiting in a way that's different. In 2009, we saw Barack Obama was a body surfer. I thought, oh, he's a body surfer. I'm a body surfer. He must care about the ocean. And so we had a Blue Vision Summit at the beginning of his administration, but we didn't really have any plans ready. And the result was we got a national ocean policy that really didn't go anywhere. And during the BP oil spill, we didn't have great leadership, the Obama administration. And in his last year, it improved, but that was late in the game. So this, this cycle, we want to come in early in the game in 2020. We've got an ocean climate action plan that could easily become implemented both in legislation and policy. And we're hoping to talk to uh, the Biden campaign and others about what can happen. And uh, we're hoping to be there if we get beyond the crisis stage of this pandemic and we begin traveling or meeting again, we'd like to be there to lobby, whether virtual or in person, um, to lobby for this Blue New Deal when we have a new administration in Congress that might be responsive to it. Yeah. So the, the plan, do the politicians have that in their hands? Have they received that? Um, the final version comes out Monday. Okay. But earlier versions we've gotten out to, you know, key, uh, People, in fact, our last webinar uh, was keynoted by Senator uh, Merkley of, of Oregon and also House members uh, Deb Holland of New Mexico and Joe Cunningham of South Carolina. And when, when we release Monday, we also have a tape of them talking about why this Blue New Deal is so important. As I say, it's, it's basic. Most of the 40% of the population and most of our GDP is located along the coastlines. And this is where we're seeing the greatest impacts. I mean, we've just, right now we're having the sixth name storm of the season rolling ashore and we're just in early July. This is the most named storms of any hurricane season in history. I just wrote a piece about how hurricane disaster response uh, is working this year in the face of the COVID uh, pandemic. I expect and hope to go into the next major hurricane with the Coast Guard to sort of show off what they're doing. One of my books, Rescue Wars, talks about the need for that. And I, I, I even just wrote a New York Times op-ed on how um, 
really want to create a 12th combatant command in the Pentagon for disaster response, because clearly without good national leadership, we're not responding well to the disasters that are rolling in on us, uh, the pandemics now, the climate impacts that continue to grow. We need that leadership, but we also, the Pentagon's got the deepest pockets and right now we're not responding well to the disasters we're facing. The wildfires, the hurricanes that will increase, pandemics are a result also of our taking out nature, you know, and eating. I always say, if you want to do three things, social distancing, mask, wash your hands, and stop eating endangered species. I mean, it was like eating chimps gave us HIV AIDS and uh, it was COVID cats that led to SARS. And now people are eating, uh, squeezing pangolins in with bats and wet markets that uh, led to this latest and, and global disaster. I mean, it's funny. It's, it's, you know, the first Earth Day, we said Mother Nature bats last, but who thought actual bats would be involved? <laughs> we don't save Mother Nature without saving Mother Ocean. So that's, that's the aim to have the, I think we've got the plan, but more importantly, we've got the constituency. We've been working with the impacted industries, working with the ports and a couple of shipping companies, working with the commercial fishermen and, and the agriculture industry, uh, shellfish industry like Taylor Shellfish. Um, shellfish industry has become the indicator species for ocean acidification. I mean, their business is already impacted. Their, their fry, their baby, uh, or their spats rather, fries the baby fish, spats are the baby shellfish, and they're already being distorted by the acidification that they're seeing in their coastal waters. They're having to add chemicals or take them out and grow them in tanks on shore. It's a crisis in the present tense, and that's the scariest part. People don't appreciate how much we're in the, you know, it's the early phases, but the, the impacts, the loss of polar ice, the loss of half the world's coral reefs, it's already with us. So, David, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, when you talk about the politicians on Capitol Hill, I'm reminded of the Blue Vision Summit of a few years ago that, that I attended. I thought it was outstanding. We spent the first day at uh, GW University covering a whole wide array of topics, and then the second day we went to Capitol Hill and met with our individual congresspeople. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to the next one. Is, is anything depending upon the pandemic, anything on the horizon? Yeah, we're all looking forward to uh, moving around without uh, PPE and, and fear. Um, I think our, our thought process is that we've got the Blue New Deal out there. We educate our elected officials. We build a coalition of, of, of industry and equity of, you know, communities, frontline communities at risk. Uh, maritime industries, uh, you know, social activists, people who just love the ocean. And hopefully a year from now in the spring, summer of, of 21, we'll be able to uh, bring people to lobby their elected officials to lobby for, as I say, restoring the blue and the red, white, and blue and bring people in as we have in the past, the Inland Ocean Coalition that one of my board members, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, founded. It's got growing chapters, working with the Great Lakes uh, Compact because the problems we see in our offshore waters from harmful algal blooms to, uh, you know, to other climate impacts, um, they're all being seen in the Great Lakes and in our fresh waters as well. 
Um, and, and so, you know, making that ocean water connection, uh, the hope is that we'll be able to mobilize people just as people have mobilized for, you know, social justice and making those links. I mean, the bottom line is, what I call the triple bottom line is where we make progress as we link the environment, the economy, and equity. And so, you know, having more diversity racially, regionally, in terms of the different sectors that are impacted by the ocean, which are almost all sectors. And I think what's interesting this year is maybe the pause created by the lockdowns and COVID, making people think more seriously about how we come out of this and what the world looks like. And I see a lot of people in like the ports sector, for example, San Diego and LA and Long Beach becoming like models of how you move towards a carbon-free port. And as you clean up the ports, it's the fence line communities that are predominantly low-income communities of color that benefit. They, they fought the pollution. And now instead of seeing them as enemies, the ports are, have reached this aha moment of like, wait a minute, we reduce the pollution, we clean up the port and things get better. The example I, use, I like to use is the Port of LA that just over a decade ago, it had intensive pollution, including lots of GHG, you know, greenhouse gas emissions uh, tied to polluting ships that would come into harbor and burn bunker fuel to power on shore. And they had thousands of trucks taking the, the boxes, the containers out of the port. A lot of old diesel trucks that were, again, just creating levels of pollution that the fence line communities had the highest rates of childhood asthma and adult cancer in the state. And therefore, there were lawsuits from San Pedro and, and Wilmington and Long Beach. And the lawsuits held up expansion in the port. And finally, uh, they hired Geraldine Nats, not only the first woman, but the first marine biologist to run a major port. The first thing she did is hold joint port commission hearings between LA and Long Beach because it's all one giant complex and began a clean air plan. And within seven years, the port had reduced air pollution over 70%. The lawsuits went away, new terminals were expanding, and port operations were expanding. And, and, you know, this is the classic example of you do good by the environment, you do good by the economy. This is a port where, at least until the COVID shutdown, over a billion dollars of goods a day cross those docks. And when you cleaned up the, the air and the water, the port expanded, the, the neighboring communities saw, finally saw environmental justice where levels of public health increased and disease decreased. And now it's, it's gone global where there's discussion of how do you electrify all the ports, you know, in electrify meaning instead of burning bunker fuel when they come in, the ports have what they call cold ironing port side power. And hopefully that power comes from wind turbines and solar and green sources. And you electrify the vehicles and the tugs come hybrid tugs and the ships themselves are developing new propulsion systems at our last Ocean Climate Action Plan, we had a webinar. We had a Norwegian ship company who talked about they're new, they're actually cruise ships, but they're hybrid power, diesel electric powered by biofuel and moving in new designs to reduce capacity. And, you know, the recognition, the science tells us we have to be all fossil fuels by 2050. I mean, we have to be a green system. And as I said, you know, coal and oil were great energy systems for the 16th and 19th century, but we're in the 21st. We, the science is in. If you don't believe the science, you get massive 
out of control pandemics like's happening in the United States. And if you don't believe the science, you get like epical changes to the planet, which is happening as a result of fossil fuel fired climate change. And so we just have to reconnect with what works, what, what you know, nature tells us and what we can learn from the ocean. And I think a lot of millions of people have learned the lessons. Now it's a question of organizing us, schooling together to uh, get good outcomes. And as they say, to uh, grow the solutions faster than the problems. Yeah, I like that uh, schooling together analogy. And that kind of leads to a thought. Now, unfortunately, we at Future Frogmen, somehow we missed the webinar, Ocean Climate Action Plan. But we would certainly love to uh, participate or contribute in any way that might be possible. But taking that a step further, what about the, the common person who doesn't know whether their individual voice matters? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How can they not just with the plan, but beyond that, what would be your, your advice to individuals who, who uh, want to do something but don't know whether, you know, they're not a government, they're not a large organization, what would your advice be to them? Well, there's always the Margaret Mead quote. She was a famous anthropologist who said, don't doubt that a small group of people can change the world, indeed nothing else ever has. So I'd say af after they read our book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, that I wrote and Jim Toomey of Sherman's Lagoon Illustrated. It's got easy instructional ways to go. But some of those ways, I mean, number one is go to the beach, which is harder these days, but go to the beach when it's not crowded because you protect what you love. And, you know, and then start doing the simple things in terms of reducing your carbon footprint. But, you know, work with the Work with others, find out what organizations are out there. If your community doesn't have an ocean organization that reaches out to you, start Future Frogmen. I mean, you're a good example of somebody who had, you know, this great history as a diver and working with Cousteau and being out in the ocean, getting all the benefits and then realizing that there was, you know, maybe an obligation to save what we've seen to make sure the next generation gets to see some of it as well. And, you know, everybody... I mean, right now I'm working locally. We're trying to save 413 acre headland, a beautiful headland in the community where I live, Richmond, California. And it's, um, this is one of our Blue Frontier projects and we're fighting the city wants to sell off this publicly owned headland with the most pristine eelgrass beds in, in San Francisco Bay and the last native grassland watershed connecting to the bay. They want to sell it to a Southern California developer for 2,000 unaffordable houses, unaffordable in this community, which is predominantly a uh, low-income community of color. So it's, it's, you know, the land use decisions impact both the environment and, and reflect the institutional racism we've had to live with for too long. And so, you know, it's a local fight, but it's a global fight. And when I was young, back at the first Earth Day, the saying was, think globally, act locally. But the reality today is we're being impacted locally, regionally, and globally, and, and we have to respond at all levels at once. And yet as individuals, we can. I mean, that's why I wrote 50 Ways, because I talk about issues like the collapse of marine wildlife, the death of coral reefs, climate change, and people would be, you know, I've got two jobs, or I'm, you know, got a double course load. Uh, what can I do as an individual? And the fact is, everything we do every day impacts the seas around us. It's becoming conscious of what those actions are, changing them, engaging with others. And, and 
the good news is once you start having an impact, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's another kind of addiction. Once you start altering reality and realizing that you can um, have some impact and some power and more so the more you work with others, you know, it's, it's like your priorities and your sense of well-being shift. You start altering reality and watching less reality TV. Even in the lockdown, there's so much we can do in terms of educating ourselves, preparing ourselves, making the calls and making the changes, starting with our, our you know, individual choices. Yeah, the, the, and the lockdown has been interesting because despite horrific aspects and the negative aspects of uh, not being able to travel and convene through technology, we are able to communicate uh, and we, meeting people and having conversations we might not have had. So that's uh, an indirect, uh, I don't want to say positive, but uh, somewhat of a positive, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, your your uh, your stories uh, remind me of uh, a lot of things. Like you, I had uh, come back. I've come back to what I was really in my heart and my brain, uh, probably since I was very young child, but uh, then intensified by experience with Cousteau and then really seeing the undersea world. And uh, I loved his quote, protect what you love, which you just alluded to. And one thing we try to do is build awareness through education and communication and action, because if people don't know, then they might not get involved and they, they won't understand. So all the efforts that we're all doing and I like your analogy, you know, start something or get involved with something locally, regionally, nationally, worldwide. There's there are a lot of opportunities out there to make a difference. I have to uh, comment, David, you've talked about uh, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. And uh, I, I just did want to comment that the first book of yours that I read was Saved by the Sea. And I found that to be a very powerful, uh, touching book, which I would highly recommend to our listeners. Very well written, of course, as well. Thanks. That's my memoir sort of traumas the ocean and I have shared over the last half century. Yeah. But also good times. Yeah. A wonderful book. Maybe just to maybe lighten up for a moment, uh, you could tell us you, you also, among, as if you didn't have enough going on, you also have an organization, Writers for the Sea. Right. And we have a Facebook page. We obviously haven't had many panels or, or gatherings recently, but it's about 80 plus, uh, you being one of them, 80 plus authors who've written at least one book on the ocean. Um, I've got a list of people I got to contact and get on board or new ocean authors, some of whom have even posted on a Facebook page about their publications. But it, it's sort of, you know, I was very thrilled. The Sierra Club just gave me the Rachel Carson Award, which goes to authors and writers who contribute to the environment. So I feel like I'm collecting my, uh, Oh, my, my Writers for the Sea Awards, because I also have a Herman Melville. Hmm. And, um, and, and basically inspired by, you know, like Richard Henry Danier Jr. and Rachel Carson. Everybody knows she wrote, uh, you know, Silent Spring. But not most people know she was already famous for these fantastic ocean books like The Sea Around Us that educated millions of Americans and people across the world to uh, what was going on. And, you know, people know. Grapes of Wrath with John Steinbeck, but maybe not the log of the Sea of Cortez when he was on the water. Um, so it's about, you know, Writers for the Sea is just an opportunity to bring some of us together occasionally and also trying to educate the public about, uh, you know, the literary value. I mean, 
everybody knows Melville, though maybe not everybody's actually read Moby Dick, but uh, you know, he was inspired in part by Richard Henry Dana Jr., who wrote two years before the mast about in the 1830s, he sailed from Massachusetts on a cattle boat that, you know, traded cattle hides with uh, Spanish California. And in 1840, this book became the bestseller in the U.S. And it sort of was how the United States became familiar with California and kind of mythologized it at the time. The best part of it is because he wrote it in 1840, it's now in the public domain. So when I wrote The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea, I could, in the chapter, you know, The Age of Sail, I could just quote extensively from Richard Henry Dana. And he kind of, you know, there's a postscript to his book, which I love, which I think all of us who write kind of want something like this, where he left, he was in San Francisco Bay in 1833, his last wintering over there. And it was just his ship, the Pilgrim, and, and another uh, a Russian sealed boat that was wintering over in this wilderness bay. And he said, this great wilderness bay, someday there could be a great nation of California that would be based on this bay. Well, he returns in 1865 after the gold rush, and now it's a city of over 100,000 and part more active than Liverpool. And he goes, he's amazed, you know, it's got libraries and opera houses. He goes down to the docks and he sees a couple of cattle skins and asks a man standing by, says, is, is there still cattle trade across the, uh, along the coast here? The guy goes, oh, no, it's, it's not like uh, the Pilgrim and those other ships you read about in that book. It's, this is the last of it. What, what we like about writing books, I guess, is it's unlike other stuff. You know, I've, I've written short form, done radio and TV documentaries, but books are the only media that sort of take on a life of their own. And so, you know, you write about the sea and you don't know who's going to pick up your, your views a century from now and get a, a new perspective on what life on the water was like, you know, in that earlier era. And, and it's a unique, I, I talk not just about writers for the sea, but the blue beat. I just spoke to outdoor writers of America about the, uh, the idea that the only resource in the ocean not fully exploited is good storytelling. And so that's, that's what we want to do. And that's, I think what you do at future frogmen. That's what we work with young people to, um, to tell those stories because, um, they're still kind of unique stories. I mean, any day on this planet, there are almost 8 billion people living on 29% of the planet. And then there's never more than 50 million people living on the other 71% of the planet that's ocean, that's salt water. And so we're just, you know, there's a big campaign now to map the ocean bottom. And we've gone from like 3% when I started Blue Frontier to now almost a third of the world's low points ocean bottom has been mapped and the plan by 2030 will have mapped the ocean at the level of resolution we've already mapped the moon and mars i mean it's it's like this is still a frontier yeah i hope that uh with that does not come too much destruction and exploitation you know from mining overfishing but uh from a technological perspective and, and a learning perspective it's fascinating and we're gonna we're gonna learn a lot right and and one of the Blue New Deal, one of the Ocean Climate Action Plan's proposals is going along with what others are saying, 30 by 30, protecting 30% of the ocean as uh, marine reserves, as no-take zones where you don't have any extractive use, no fishing, mining, or drilling, because those reserves create a biological library of resources that we're going to need in the future. We're going to have to go back, and if we're going to restore 
our ocean planet, we're, we're going to have to start with places that are fully protected. So that's, that's part of the sustainable use of our ocean blue economy is to have the most productive areas and migratory paths of wildlife protected so that we still do have a living ocean, even as we use it productively for things like offshore wind energy generation. Yeah. David, two, two more topics. Uh, I want to circle back because uh, it's so important on climate change and the impact on the ocean. I heard Bill McKibben speak recently here in Connecticut, and uh, he was outstanding. And one of his messages was that despite all our individual efforts, comes down to turning off the spigot, basically shutting down fossil fuel production, and then states like you mentioned, California, potentially divesting from uh, a lot of holdings, if not all holdings, and then other states and cities and towns and universities, and even the work you're doing uh, with Washington, those have those are very powerful and have huge potential positive impacts. But meanwhile, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, what I'm sure you believe that individually, we've talked about it a little bit already, but individually our, our actions do matter. If you had to pick, say, two or three things, so, so an individual listening could pick, say, one or two of those to, to help make a difference, what, what would come to your mind? Um, right now, vote the ocean. Right now, it's, you know, it's Sea Party 2020. Um, we, we've seen what bad policies are doing every day you know, the combination of racism and anti-environmentalism and just kind of, uh, you know, incompetency has done in the face of a pandemic where we knew what, you know, how to respond. And we've seen, you know, the oil lobbyists, we literally have an oil lobbyist running the, uh, the Department of Interior and a coal lobbyist running the EPA. So I'd say, you know, mobilize people, vote for the people with good ocean policies. And uh, that, that gives us the, the framework in which then after November, we can begin to mobilize and, and implement things like this Blue New Deal. So right at this moment, voting is number one. Number two is making those connections, you know, um, making sure, you know, be part of the conversation about, um, about racial justice, because that's part of the conversation about the environment. I, I mean, it's, it's funny when you actually look at recent polling, um, Hispanics, Latinx have the highest, you know, like 70 some percent are concerned or very concerned over climate. 57% of African-Americans, 49% of whites. Um, it sort of makes sense when you reflect on it because it's frontline communities, it's Cancer Alley and the, you know, next to the petrochemical plants in, in Louisiana and also Richmond, California, where I live. This this headland we're fighting to defend is right next to Chevron refinery. Um, the polluting fossil fuel industries have always impacted or impoverished communities, mostly communities of color, but also communities in West Virginia and, and the Appalachia that saw the coal taken out and the pits left behind. The other thing is working to divest, divest your own investments, uh, work with others to get off of fossil fuels. We're at the stage where the science and the technology are all here for a rapid transition off fossil fuels. It's just the political power of big oil that's, uh, that's holding back. You know, the fact that they've captured one of two of our political parties has resulted in a stalemate that shouldn't have happened. And, you know, and you look back, there's so many opportunities 
in the recent past, in the 80s and the 90s, to have moved on to clean energy. It's a huge economic opportunity. So I'd say, you know, one vote to get involved with divestiture, you know, three, get involved with the conversations about how equity, the connections between the environment and social equity. And that's that's a lot to do between now and November. And after November, if things, if the tide turns, then we can talk about all the next steps that we're ready to take. Yeah. Uh, well said. That That's perfect. And uh, don't underestimate your individual vote. That's part of your message that that I think you just said. And, and the, the second question you, uh, you went into, which I'm, I'm happy you did, because I did want to talk about uh, systemic racism. You've touched upon that throughout our conversation, and you had a great podcast, uh, Black Lives in Blue Water, with your guest, Annie Washington. I found that very interesting, and uh, she was a great guest. Uh, and I, throughout this spring and summer with uh, predominantly young people that I work with as, as our interns, it's been interesting. I've been a little surprised in a very pleasant way and admiring their reaction to the racial injustice and how upset they have been. And we've addressed that several times uh, and will continue to do so. Um, and in order to try to help them, and you've, you've, this has been a theme throughout our conversation here presented by you, but I, I try to remind them that environmental justice, environmental injustice is racial injustice. So what we are trying to do is working for the greater good associated with racial injustice as well. I think yeah, I, and there's so many examples. I mean, I'm, I'm just today trying to place an opinion that I wrote with Courtney Cummings, who's a local Richmond, California founder of the Richmond Pow Wow. And as I say, there's no question we have this beautiful natural headland. It's a major nesting site for ospreys in the bay. We, the Point Melody Alliance, it's a project of Blue Frontier. We took one of our two high school um, classes out there one day and, you know, they were doing water quality testing by the water and osprey came down and grabbed a fish and the kids just lit up, you know, it was like this whole moment. And this is what it should be for. Instead, the city is trying to sell it off to a Southern California developer. So Courtney's from the Plains tribe, but she works with the Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the Bay Area, and they're still active today. There's the, you know, we're working in alliance with the Ohlone. Um, the Southern California developer put out a draft environmental impact report uh, in which they didn't consult the Ohlone, even though they have burial mounds and sacred sites that are on this headland. There's there's no question if, if this were a white middle class or wealthy community, this would have been a regional park a generation earlier. Now that's what we're fighting for. We want to keep public lands in public hands. We don't, you know, we see this model of development where the mayor wants to develop the shoreline for high-end housing and ignore the, the center city where there's already existing infrastructure and transportation where you could have mixed housing that would allow people to maintain in their own community. So, you know, this could be of a vibrant working class community of color, which is what it is today, or it could be gentrified out and it's, it, you know, opportunities to connect with nature. And I go there, you know, on a regular basis, and it's usually people of colors, increasingly parents taking their kids there to the beach park, which is the only part of it open and an opportunity to get them out and connected with nature and keep the kids active. We've got like 
a Latino soccer team, high school soccer team that's the winningest in the state, but no fields to play on. So this is, you know, this is the real example of land use being a racial issue. It's not just brutal police. The brutal police are protecting a system of privilege. And until we have real social equity, we're not going to have. It's like democracy. And I've seen this all over the world when I've traveled. Democracy is a prerequisite for environmental reform. It doesn't guarantee it. But without democracy, you don't get long-term engaged environmental protection. Without social equity, you don't get that either. And what I'm hopeful is, you know, this upcoming generation under 30, you know, like my nephew's generation, they've grown up socializing across racial and gender lines. And they're, you know, they're not, they're not in the segregationist mindset that older generations bring to the issue. And, you know, an injustice to once and injustice to all, they understand how the system works maybe better. And, and they have less, well, they have more invested, but less invested in the present structures. You know, students today are seeing injustice. They're indebted to the federal government. The loans are, you know, we're trying to suck resources out of our youth instead of provide them opportunities. And enough, you know, enough already. So I think we're, you know, I grew up in the 60s with, you know, a social movement. Um, Jefferson said, should be a revolution every 20 years. Well, he led one revolution and it was incomplete. He was a slaveholder. It was the second part of the American Revolution was a civil war. Um, and still people aren't free. And, you know, and, and the promise of America is that we keep fighting for it to expand the meaning of freedom. And so the rebels of, and the most progressive rebels like Tom Paine in 1776 inspired a vision of universal emancipation. And that that expansion can use today. And today we're beginning to look even beyond our own species and saying, what about the rights of nature? What about the rights of the other living beings, you know, in the ocean who share our water planet with us? And so we do it not just for our rights as people, but for the rights of all living things, um, the right to exist, the right to thrive. And guess what? When you do good by the planet, you do good by yourself. You're your own health, your own pocketbook, your own sense of well-being to be part of something larger than yourself. People ask if I'm pessimistic or optimistic. Well, I'm realistic. We're doing triage. We're saving what we can, but I'm always optimistic when I'm in the water. When I'm body surfing and a dolphin pops up next to me, when I'm on a coral reef surrounded by neutrally buoyant, you know, blowing bubbles and feeling like I'm flying and sort of You've lived it. I mean, going from the micro, you look at a little sponge and there's a whole community of mantis shrimps and, you know, critters. And then you look up and there's a big turtle or, or a giant manta ray swimming over you. We're part of a, of a web of life. And, and most of that web has webbed feet. Like, I, you know, I quote Thoreau, you know, heaven's not just above our, our heads, it's below our feet. And I just amend it to say below our fins as well. That's very well said, David. That's, a, a, I think, a, a good way to end our conversation today. Uh, how can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Uh, just go to Blue Frontier, which is bluefront.org. We'll be posting connections there to the, to the Ocean Climate Action Plan, or you can just Google that, you know, and we'll just keep moving on and hopefully we'll soon be getting wet again. And uh, one of these days we'll even, we haven't done it yet. One of these days we're even going to be going for a dive together. Yeah. I, I very much look forward to that, David. 
thank you so much for, for visiting with us today. Uh, we at Future Frogmen, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this. Uh, keep up your great work and count on us for any ways that we can collaborate or uh, contribute to the great work that you do. Thanks again. Thank you for your work. Take care. We hope you liked today's Blue Earth podcast. Thanks for listening. Wherever you're hearing us, please rate and review the show and check out our website for upcoming podcasts, blogs, and more. We're now releasing the Blue Earth podcast on a weekly basis. So until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks. Thanks.